Our next speaker is Mr. Mick Wallace. Madness. madness. This is madness. We cannot fix a problem caused by capitalism with more capitalism. They hurt the people. I ended up at the end of a gun on three occasions. I don't well to survive anyway. Madame Daly will speak. A union which allows fiscal rules to be broken for arms expenditure, not for housing or to put roofs over the heads of people. This is evidence of police violence. Whether you're an economic migrant or you're an asylum seeker, nobody deserves to be treated like this. And even having the neck to suggest separating people from their mothers. How dare you? Buongiorno tutti, we're back again with a very special episode this time, hot on the success of last night's showing in the European Parliament of Cuba's life task, Combating Climate Change, which I have to say was an outstanding uh, documentary produced by Helen Yaffe, who we have the privilege of being here with us. Uh, Helen is going to lead this podcast, but the film was pulled together and organised by our very own Damien Thompson, who's taking a backseat role today. He'll be in the guest seat rather than the presenter. Uh, and uh, introduced by Mick, who I thought felt that last night was a great preparation for the COP27 talks, which both Damien and Mick will be attending on behalf of the left group. And it was a, a great intro, really, to them to be there. What do you think? Are you fired up now after last night? Well, first of all... Um I thought it was, it was a great blow for the environment that Helen, who was based in Glasgow, is a Glasgow Celtic fan. So that's a great start <laughs> yeah. for a start, right? Well, yep. So, happy days. Indeed. Well, we maybe just start with Helen introducing yourself and telling us about the work that you're doing and a bit of your story around Cuba. OK, yeah. so my name is Helen Yaffe. I'm a senior lecturer at the University of Glasgow in economic and social history, and I specialise in Cuban and Latin American development. So I've been um, living in, researching and visiting Cuba since 1995 when I went to live there with my older sister in the one of the worst periods of the what's known as the special period of economic crisis in Cuba after the collapse of the Soviet bloc when Cuba's GDP had plummeted by 35%. Um, and we spent a year there and just just sort of roamed around and just really? learnt about Cuba mm. and um, socialist development. Cool. But yeah. it obviously stayed with you because, uh, yeah, the film was inspiring. So, um, boys... Yeah, do you want to tell us also then about the film and what kind of led to the production of this film? Because it's it's in a very interesting one. It's about Terea Vida, which is this Cuban plan for tackling climate change with mitigation and adaptation. We have in the European Union the European Green Deal. Uh, Cuba has a completely different approach. Um, tell us more about it and the documentary. So. so I had been writing about Cuban development for years and looking at, um, you know, the fact that many scientific reports have placed Cuba as world-leading in terms of sustainable development. And I also had a chapter in my new book, um, We Are Cuba, How mm. a Revolutionary People Have Survived in a Post-Soviet World, about the what's called the Energy Revolution, um, the, the attempt to transition to uh, renewable energies, energy saving, um, energy security, which is a big deal for Cuba. Um, and so then COP26 uh, took place a year ago in Glasgow and the university was offering funding for projects related to the environment. So 
I managed to access a bit of funding and we went out to Cuba last summer and basically filmed the documentary speaking to e uh, experts, scientists, activists, um, law students and so on. Um, it was a very difficult time in Havana because it was their COVID search and there was very strict regulations in terms of, you know, epidemiological um, uh, aspects and stuff. So we, we ran around Havana filming and interviewing people and um, put the documentary, documentary together in a very short time, ready for the first day of COP on the mm. 1st of November last year. And we were delighted that the premier was attended by the whole of the Cuban delegation that were in Glasgow for COP, including the Minister of Science, Technology and the Environment. I think science was a real striking part of the documentary, wasn't it? Like the sort of community-based scientific analysis and priority that's been put on climate change was incredibly impressive. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the statistics, like the number of scientists per population in Cuba before the revolution, I mean, even a US government report from the 1950s said there's no real scientific research being carried out in Cuba. And immediately they started to invest in education and education for social development and invest in science, as well as obviously medicine. And the two are very linked in Cuba. And now they, you know, by, by the 1980s, so it shows how quickly this uh, investment can pay off, they had a ratio of scientists per population that was almost equivalent to Western Europe and the United States. So they have this incredible capacity and they have scientists in every neighbourhood who are working on you know, meteorological analysis and, um, and all sorts of things in, in healthcare as well. So uh, science is really important, the investments in, in science, technology and innovation. And in, interestingly, the new president, of, not so new, but Miguel Diaz-Canal, <laughs> the president of Cuba, he's a, an electrical engineer and he's very much put science, technology and innovation at the forefront of Cuba's development plans today. And I think it's interesting when you say this, because in the European Union, when we talk about innovation all the time, it's very much profit motivated here. And it's actually often used as a Buddhist word for just shoveling out money into private investment in not necessary things. But in a Cuban context, it's very much about needs on the ground, actual technologies that will be of use to the people and actually get somewhere in terms of sustainable development. But um, the other thing, like you mentioned as well, Claire, is about the community involvement, which I think is another part of this Tarea Vida plan, which is <coughs> totally different. And a part of your documentary, you were going out to different places and speaking with the people there about the processes. Maybe you can tell us more about that angle of it. Yeah, so they realised that um, making a policy doesn't make it happen. So you have to get the engagement and commitment of the people that you need on board and the people who are aff affected. So in every municipality, which is like a borough in Cuba, they have an office of SITMA. SITMA is the name given to the Ministry of Science, Technology and the Environment. They have one in, um, in basically in every area in Cuba. And... Um, they also have a representative or an office of the civil defence system, which is completely comprehensive. And as the documentary shows, this is developed after a terrible hurricane in 1963. So a few years into the revolution, Hurricane Flora, which saw thousands killed and loss of um, livestock and so on. And um, they said, you know, we need this, this system of civil defence. And it serves mul multiple functions. So it is defence against um, meteorological phenomena, like um, mainly hurricanes and then the 
corresponding upswe- upswelling of the coastal uh, of the seas and so on. But also it's there for military defence because this for Cuba has been a very real and um, uh, constant threat, you know, the, the threat of hostilities from the United States and and allies. So, I mean, would you sense that um, in Cuba that all that the people are very much uh, kind of clued into the challenges of climate change? Well, what's interesting, I think that by comparative standards, we would say yes. But if you notice the... Um, advisor to the Minister of Science, Technology and the Environment um, was saying, you know, we're not quite satisfied with the level of consciousness among the population. We've realised the importance of social science. And then you have the director of um, Flaxo, is uh, social science department in the University of Havana, who says, you know, we social scientists globally came to the issue of climate change quite late, but they are now playing a really important role in Tarea Bida, in terms of um, devising consultations and they have expertise on how do you get women involved, how do you make the policies um, so that they are about protecting vulnerable people, disabled people, children and so on. So they are playing a really important role in this sort of pioneering work of participation, mobilisation at the community level. Mm -hmm. It was, was, we noticed when we were in Pakistan last week, um, something that you wouldn't see at home in Ireland or, or in Europe, or, like you wouldn't see in Brussels, right? You couldn't go 50 metres, but there's a sign on a pole about climate change mm. and about uh, what we have to do. And there's, they're kind of, uh, it's, they're almost bombarding the people uh, with it. Mm. And obviously because of the floods and whatever, I mean, uh, because they're suffering uh, so uh, openly and it's um, impossible for them to ignore us, right? But uh, I think it is a challenge uh, for us in Europe uh, to raise the level of consciousness of of all the different individuals. And uh, it's great if, if the Cubans are probably ahead of us on that too. Yeah, so, I mean, Tarea is a state plan and it's been approved at the highest level of legislative power, which is the National Assembly. And this ministry, SITMA, is responsible, but it is um, basically all the ministries and institutions in Cuba play a role in it, and they SITMA coordinates that. So education is a key thing, and the issue of climate change and protecting the environment is embedded in the educational system. Mm. And, you know, that is one of the benefits of having um, public ownership mm. of, uh, of all these institutions, that the, the government can say, right, we need this to be part of the curriculum, and you don't have private schools that are setting their own agendas, for example. So um, this is really important. It's on the television, you know, so you've got the um, the sort of TV and radio institution are also part of the agenda and they all have to report. They have to report more or less monthly on, on what they're doing mm. in, in this regard. Um, and it does give the government the capacity to really politically direct policy And um, that's what we can see in Cuba. I mean, you know, there are problems because most of these are are linked to resource constraints. So there's many ideas that they have. There's many visions that they have, things they know that should be done. But because of um, the, you know, they're going through an economic crisis at the moment, completely compounded by 
the increase in sanctions under the Trump administration, which Biden has done nothing to reverse. And it means that, you know, it's very frustrating for the, the Cubans because they have these wonderful plans. And they were talking in the documentary about, you know... Um, uh, a fund they've been able to access, which was, I mean, in international terms, it's a very small amount. It was 23 million. Mm. But they can do so much with, you know, mm. with that uh, a small pocket of money and they can finance, you know, really important projects which see really big transitions. Yeah, and it's interesting as well. In, in the European Union, we talk a lot about carbon capture and storage, um, these technological and also profiting kind of... Um, solutions to climate change whereas in Cuba they're also looking at mitigation and adaptation quite with the same lens and very much about their own natural environment and that kind of leads in also with the whole focus on science and community because local environment is there um, so maybe the other thing would be nice to expand on is about the role for na nature-based solutions in this Cuban plan and community involvement there and, and what's happening in that respect. Yeah so I think the first thing is that there is a notion that the state is responsible for people's welfare, for people's development, for the environment as well. And that's been embedded in um, since the first constitution that was passed by the revolutionary government, which wasn't until 1976, but that notion that the state is responsible. Um, and then you have the problem of, um, you know, we can identify, we have the science, and the science is we can identify these problems, we can match the IPPC um estimates whatever to to our conditions to local conditions but then what do we do about it so uh, because cuba in you know in so many ways as they say necessity is the mother of invention um it has been forced to find natural solutions and national solutions because um one aspect of the u.s blockade or embargo some people call it is that many people aren't aware of is that from the very early legislation it um, basically prohibits Cuba from accessing international financial institutions and, multi and joining multilateral development banks. And so Cuba has had to seek, you know, its own resources, very limited resources. But in terms of climate change, they've realised that there are these natural resources that they can use. So mangroves, sowing mangroves is a really um, good measure to protect the coastline. So they've been doing massive work in terms of sowing mangroves, protecting their coral reefs and so on. Um, and projects like that, that um, one of the first um, elements of Terra Vida, one of the first legislations is no more new buildings on the coastline. So you don't see these sort of built up tourist areas where it's just compounding the problem. And so they have regulations like that. They're trying to do buildings that are, um, you know, with ecological architecture and elements like that. Mm. So just two quick questions. Um, you mentioned last night as well about this 1976 resolution. Uh, what exactly uh, was in, was involved in that? Uh, I was uh, obviously it seems it sounds like as if the way you put it last night they were well ahead of the posse, uh, ahead mm. of their time. And my second question: um, How much of an impact do the does the U.S. blockade and the sanctions have uh, on their environmental ambition? Yeah, so the, um, it was actually in the new constitution, there was an article that said that the, the state is responsible and the population is responsible for caring for the environment. And, you know, the population are yeah, responsible. Both the state mm. and the and the oh, people okay, yeah, right. are responsible. And then as you know, because the, it can't just be a paper exercise, they then set up institutions to care for, you know, cleaning rivers, 
um, and reforestation, which actually had been started straight away um, by the revolutionary government. But, I mean, we have to say, as I said last night, we also have to recognise that they did have policies that were detrimental to the environment, like the so-called green revolution in agriculture. So very, you know, diesel-powered tractors. They had 90,000 tractors, an incredible amount, if you look at the population of Cuba. Um, but then, you know, gradually there, there was always a voice of environmentalists in Cuba, um, including one who was famous from, uh, you know, he'd written a, the geography of Cuba that got banned by the Batista dictatorship because it, it sort of wrote about the environment, but in terms of socio in socioeconomic terms and how it perpetuates poverty and so on. Um, and he then became a commandante in the rebel army and then worked very closely with both Che Guevara and Fidel Castro. He was the first president of the National Institute for Agrarian Reform. And he had, um, you know, so it, I think his influence and probably his influence on Fidel Castro inserted the theme of the environment at, uh, you know, it had to have a central place in this development plan that they they gradually um, that emerged in Cuba. So that was really important. And then, as I said last night, um, well, then you have the very uh, important speech by Fidel Castro at the mm. Rio summit in 1992. 30 years ago, we had the 30th anniversary of that speech this year, where he was already making that link between uh, consumer imperialist societies, capitalist development and the destruction of the environment and how that impacts what they called at that time the third world or the developing world, the global south populations and how those populations, you know, shouldn't be denied the right to develop, shouldn't be blamed for their um, state of the planet. And he was, you know, as you said it last was. night, it was alarming <laughs> language. He said a species... <laughs> is at danger of extinction, mm. and that is mankind, right, because of the destruction of the environment. And ends with those famous words, tomorrow will be too late mm. for what we should have done a long time ago now, if you, you think that he said that 30 years ago. Yeah, it's interesting because now we're just concluding the leader summits now in COP27, so 27 years of talking about the climate, and this is before we even had the UNFCCC, these very prophetic words actually coming from Cuba. So the leadership was actually there at the time. It was just about the rest of the world being a bit slow. Not listening, yeah. yeah. And so in relation to the question of the US mm. blockade, I mean, we have to be clear, it affects detrimentally every sector in Cuba. It affects, um, you know, science and technology innovation we've been talking about. It affects their capacity to get the equipment that they need, the even access to the latest um, uh, ideas and innovations because, you know, <laughs> Reagan passed a law to say that Cubans couldn't even subscribe to, to US journals, which had, you know, the latest scientific oh, information and so on. So um, I think they were giving... It was very difficult, actually, in editing the documentary to to not have too many examples mm. of specific cases, <coughs> like the woman from Civil Defence was talking about getting early warning systems. They can't get them from the United States, so they have to search for alternatives. They're maybe not the best, but they also have to come from the other side of the world. That massively increases transport costs. But so, I mean, in every aspect of Cuban life, the US blockade is detrimental. And, I, you know, I sometimes say to people, just imagine where you live and imagine, you know, there are your local shops and maybe you produce something and you sell to your neighbours. And then suddenly all of the local <laughs> shops say, we're not selling anything to you. 
You know, so it's it's just very difficult. You can't even get your bread and milk, right? Mm. And in the case of Cuba, um, two things have happened recently. The Trump administration passed 243 new actions, sanctions and coercive measures during that administration, including more than 50 during the COVID pandemic, when the United Nations and other bodies were asking countries, please don't continue sanctions that affect the capacity of countries to respond to this global health crisis. And they D- did. Just to say that again, 150 new... Two, 243. But during the COVID pandemic... No, the, uh, over 50 during the COVID pandemic. Over 50, pandemic. that is, is uh, incredible. And <laughs> immediately, so, for example, in spring 2019, they threatened to find shipping companies carrying oil to Cuba. And there was a tanker on its way, it was about to dock and unload, and it just sailed off. And suddenly overnight, Cuba had an energy scarcity crisis that was externally enforced that affects the capacity of public transport, of hospital generators, of uh, workplaces. So this goes on, and every time they have to then suddenly buy an alternative, it's at the the high market prices, you know, uh, open market and so on. So it puts incredible strain. But perhaps the worst measure that took place a few days before leaving office, very vindictively, Trump put Cuba back on the list of state sponsors of terrorism. I mean, did you ever? Yeah. So, you know, even the the officials in the State Department have said, no one thinks Cuba's involved in terrorism. This is just political. But what that has meant is it has triggered like a red light for all financial institutions, for investors, for banks. And there are very few banks internationally that will now transact with Cuba because it's not worth the risk to them of uh, what they're fearing is fines by the Office of Foreign Asset Controls mm. of the US Treasury. This is an extraterritorial yeah. element of the sanctions. This, this is yeah. the world of, of democracy, like, did you ever? And you were dealing with the vote on the blockade, Mick. You should remind listeners about the who 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 has you know, up, continue to uphold this at the, the latest UN vote on it. Oh, yeah. Um, it was only a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Um, yeah, the US and Israel were the only ones to vote against. This is the uh, UN General Assembly yeah, resolution. Um, there was a resolution to lift the, the US blockade, so the Americans and the Israelis uh, opposed it, and uh, Bolsonaro's Brazil and uh, our good friends in Ukraine uh, abstained. Uh, yeah, so... Um, and 185 yeah. countries yeah. voted with it's, Cuba. But, and but, it's worth saying it's the 30th year that Cuba's won that vote. Yeah, yeah. isn't it incredible? And we talk but about rules-based order, isn't it? So. <laughs> it was interesting to hear Zelensky uh, um, say like a couple of days ago that uh, when Netanyahu was re-elected, he said that Ukraine and Israel uh, share uh, common values. They clearly do. And yeah, uh, yeah I think mm. he was telling the truth. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So we had a situation during COVID where as I said last night Cuba was the only country in Latin America and the Caribbean to produce a COVID vaccine, not one, but five. Um and at the same time so they had the scientific capacity world leading um, and I've written quite extensively on Cuba's biotech sector and the first country in the world to have a meningitis B vaccine in 1988 mm. the first country in the world to have a um, lung cancer immunothera- um, immunotherapy which is 
being used around the world and extending and improving lives and many, many other firsts. But because of those sanctions, they couldn't get the needles that they needed to um, inject the population. And that's where the solidarity movement stepped in. I think from the United States, at least six million were... Um, were provided this, sorry, I should say syringes, not needles. Mm-hmm. Um, to, um, six million were provided in European solidarity groups as well. Um, there is a new campaign, if you um, yeah, will yeah. allow me to mention, um, which is um, addressing this issue of banks and other financial institutions refusing to transact with Cuba. Cuba's an island. It's dependent on trade, imports and exports of services and goods. But if you can't transact the money, then the goods won't follow and the services Mm. either. So it's suffocating Cuba. The new campaign is directed for people outside of the United States who are really, let's use the word, victims of, as you say, Mm. Damien, the extraterritorial character of the United States blockade. And the idea of the campaign, it's called One Cent for Cuba, and the slogan is Make the US Blockade of Cuba Unenforceable, is to carry out transactions between um, different jurisdictions, so UK to Europe, for example, with as little as you can get away with, your, <laughs> your bank will allow you to send, so one cent, one euro, one pound, and put the word Cuba in the reference. Now, you're not sending money to Cuba, you're sending money to another sovereign jurisdiction outside of Cuba. And what we're doing is showing that the banks will block these transactions, which is a violation of um, 1996 EU law and UK law, and also the urging of the... um, the United Nations, they will block the transactions because not just Cuba is blocked, but the word Cuba (laughs) is now being blocked by these banks. And so then what what happens is you complain to your bank afterwards and then you complain to your national regulator. And we're building up... um, The campaign is building up um, the experience, the case studies to show how uh, these unilateral sanctions Mm. against Cuba, because the United States is the only country in the world to sanction Cuba and the only country to regard Cuba as uh, involved in terrorism in any way, how this is actually illegally impacting all of us and all of our civil liberties and our rights and our, you know, freedom to do what, to send our money where we want. So even donations, humanitarian donations have been blocked. So after the terrible fire they had in Matanzas in August, donations were blocked. After the hurricane, um, very recently, a few weeks ago, donations have been blocked. So um, people can find out about this. There's a, the international, the days of action, so we're asking everyone to mm-hmm. send money on the same day, is the 17th of every month. So okay. today, you know... So is there a website or a There is a website. Okay. It's, yeah. it's very simple. It's 1C4, the number, the number one. four. Yeah, number one, letter C, uh, number four, yeah. Cuba.eu. Don't confuse that now with I4C. Okay. <laughs> yes. One C4. Is Cuba capitals or lowercase? Uh, capital C. C. Yes. yes. So I, I see for Cuba. Yes, which is short one for cent one cent for, for Cuba. Cuba. And then EU. 
EU. But that's just Dot an EU. amazing... Dot yeah. EU. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think you have mm. graphically, we deal with sanctions an awful lot on this programme in terms of the impact on other countries, but you've gla- graphically illustrated the devastating impact that they have and the flagrant illegality of it as well. But no, I think that's a great campaign and people would like to, you know, put a bit of boot into that. So we'll certainly be doing it. So you can kind of send a transaction to your granny or your cousin or whatever. Exactly. All you have to do is mm. just put Cuba uh, in the title and then when they block you, follow the steps and uh, afterwards. Complain all the the, the, the website is very simple. Great. There's a video that will talk you through. There's a number of steps. The really important thing is that you don't just send the transaction and forget about it because banks will, it will it may appear that your money has gone out. Mm. So, I mean, your money may go out, but it doesn't mean it's arrived. Where is your money going when it disappears? Sometimes for eight weeks, sometimes they can do this up to 12 weeks. We don't know. Mm -hmm. So the point is to then pursue it, to chase it up and find out what's happened and make a complaint. Mm. I have to say as well that the banks are giving compensation when you complain. Hear that now, compensation (laughs) as well. Now you've got them all. (laughs) This is obviously funds that that can then go towards um, the solidarity groups involved or to if you can get it to Cuba, to to humanitarian aid for Cuba. Brilliant. A win-win, we call that. isn't, Isn't it, you know... It's funny, but we don't always think about it, but you're saying that Trump introduced 50 measures uh, during COVID that was actually... I mean, it's like these sanctions are literally condemning people to die. Mm. And and we've seen the same in Iran, in Syria, in Venezuela. Sanctions are killing people, and they're illegal sanctions. But there isn't enough being said about them uh, in mainstream Mm. media, Mm. about the fact that these sanctions are illegal, they're killing people. And I mean, but Cuba is such an inspiration to the whole world. I mean, it's 60 years of Mm. persecution from the Americans, the so-called democratic Americans, and they're still standing. Yeah, I know. It's incredible. Um, as I say in my book, I think Cuba wrote the rule book on resilience. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. it never surprises me that there's problems in Cuba. People come to you and say, oh, yeah, but there's these problems in Cuba. People want to leave Cuba. What surprises me is that they've achieved so much yeah. despite the blockade. In um, 2009, I interviewed the then president of Ecuador, Rafael Correa. And as he said to me, you know, Ecuador wouldn't last 50 days with that blockade that the United States, that Cuba, sorry, at that point had lasted 50 mm. years. So it is an incredible story of mm. resilience. And I think the way that they've done that is really um, is mobilizing the population, you know. So everyone, well, not everyone, there's always exceptions, mm. but people, you know, have a commitment to, um, to preserving, you know, the system that they have. Um, despite the problems and, you know, anyone who's been to Cuba will know that they're very good at complaining and they're very um, vocal, which I think is actually a very healthy sign of, uh, of um, you know, of yeah, a society in debate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what I thought was nice about the document. Like, it was really inspiring, but it wasn't starry-eyed. Like, you know, mm. it was very practical. It was very uplifting, but not in the sort of, you know, blind, oh, Cuba is paradise or anything like that. Mm. It was just... It was great, but it, their, their resilience is incredible. And I mean, the information you've given us now on the sanction, I mean, the whole US is going on about Donald Trump and Capitol Hill and how he's the underminer of democracy. But nobody mentions what he's done yeah. here and the well, impact. It's the other thing Cuba. that needs to be mentioned yeah. is about mm. the efforts in this war on Cuba, the efforts of democracy promotion within Cuba and the amount of money being put into that, mm. while at the same time preventing Cuba accessing resources for any sort of ecological <coughs> transition. And we all know climate is something that should 
transcend all these other issues, but yeah. we don't really care, yeah. it seems, if we're... But essentially, it's a dual-track policy. Um, so, and, and, you know, you're talking about how it's how people suffer, people die. But if you look at the founding documents behind the US blockade, so there's a famous memorandum by Lester Mallory, 6th of April, 1960. And he is a very short memorandum, but he lays out certain facts according to them, which is that Fidel Castro is very popular, that the Communist Party is increasing in confidence. This is before that Cuba had announced that it was a socialist revolution and um, that they didn't think it was likely for there to be a movement, you know, to overthrow Fidel Castro because the revolution was very popular. So he sets out this proposal that the only way that we can... Oh, and an invasion w wouldn't be a good idea at this stage. The only way that we can see, you know, Castro overthrown is to use economic weapons, which essentially is what sanctions are, to create, and these are the words that he used, hunger and desperation among the Cuban population so that they then turn on their mm. government. So th this is the two-track. One is uh, create um, incredible hardship, daily hardship at the moment. Since 2019, as a result of these measures, Cubans have been getting up at four or five in the morning to get into queues for, you know, basic food goods, um, to create that frustration and discontent. And then, um, you know, at the same time, you're promoting regime change programs. 20 million approved of US taxpayers' money through the Congress. That's what's over. That's what's publicly spent on what they call democracy promotion regimes. Uh, program, sorry. And <laughs> so it's quite um, phenomenal that they have been so unsuccessful. Um, you know, there was the violent protests last summer was the first time they've had that sort of national protest. The only other protest that was close was during the worst point of that economic crisis, a special period in 1994. Uh, but that was just in Havana. So, um, you know, I had written a report about the situation in Cuba a month before that. And I was talking about how hard life was, you know, the mm. daily grind, transport and um, food. And, and even now, a country with the capacity to produce nearly 70% of the medicines they produce domestically suddenly you have you're going back to empty pharmacy shelves because they can't get the inputs the you know reagents that they need to produce these medicines or the the, the equipment that's needed and um, I had said the Cubans have shown remarkable mm. you know tolerance and mm -hmm. endurance but we shouldn't be surprised if we see you know flashpoints and protests because it's only human you mm, know that absolutely. people react to their circumstances but the fact that this is imposed as part of a uh, strategy of regime change from an external power is something that we should all get very cross about mm. Mm. yeah and it's, it's it's interesting to hear you say that about the fact that it's, it's only natural to be to accept uh, to expect protests and all as well and we, were, we are seeing the same thing in iran right mm -hmm. uh, but the sanctions have also killed people in iran <coughs> and there is there is people that would like regime change because things are so difficult there as mm -hmm. well you know mm -hmm. um, but uh, you mentioned the fact that um, as bad as trump was and when biden uh, campaigned in the last election he said he would lift the the worst of the new trump uh, measures mm -hmm. but he's done nothing and given that Biden is supposed to be the friend of the EU, uh, wouldn't you it's a pity now that the EU wouldn't put some pressure on Biden uh, to keep his word on lifting sanctions on Cuba. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a lot to be said for Biden. Um, I think it's clear that his advisers were telling him, you know, don't ease back on Cuba. It's on the brink of collapse. And they saw those protests and they, you know, as usual, misread what was happening. Um, but in relation to the EU, I think there's a lot more the EU could do, not only on the question of relationship with Biden and and his policy, but, you know, there, um, another one of the terrible measures, the detrimental measures that Trump passed was to suspend something called Title Three of the Helms-Burton Act. Now, the Helms-Burton Act was passed in 1996 by Clinton under immense pressure. Um, but Title Three, it's only got four titles. Title Three says that anyone who has um, a US citizen, and it's retrospective, so Cubans who weren't US citizens at the time of the revolution can claim you know, retrospectively that status, which is a complete abnormality in international mm. legal terms. But um, anyone who claims that they lost property through the nationalization process can sue any um, businesses or the Cuban government or foreign businesses that are investing in those facilities today and claim, you know, the 50, 60 years of profits <laughs> that they claim that they would have oh had. So when this was initially passed, there was such an uproar from the EU and Canada and basically the rest of the world, but the EU and Canada have um, most uh, leverage. They threatened to take the United States to the World Trade Organization. Canada threatened to take the United States to NAFTA. And because of that threat and the uproar, um, they suspended Title III. And so for 23 years, a president actually signed a suspension of Title um, Three of the Helms-Burton Act until Trump, who lifted it in 2019. Now, the EU came out with a very strong condemnation, as did Canada, but they didn't follow through with the previous threat to take this through legal channels. And I think if the EU were to do that now, it could lead to Biden returning to suspend Title III. The impact of Title III has been, uh, in the legal terms, limited at this point. Lots of the cases have been very, uh, they're very weak. They've been thrown out of court. But there is a US citizen who lives in London, Michael Benn, and his grandfather... Um, who was a founder of ITT Corporation, which was later associated with the coup in Chile, uh, had a very close relationship with Nazis in Germany, and so on a very, very sordid and dubious history. Um, he, he is now trying to get $3 billion from four US cruise companies because they've used a dock which his grandfather... Uh, had a concession to control back in, you know, <laughs> before the revolution. So, I mean, it, this, the, the real impact of Title Three has been to scare investors off from mm. dealing with Cuba because none of them want to go through this. And, you know, it's hard enough, for I think, for investors to be incentivized to go to Cuba. They go to Cuba because Cuba has very highly skilled workforce and, um, you know, political stability and all the rest of it. But this is designed, it's everything that they've done is designed to um, to stop a source of revenue for Cuba, to basically mm. strangle or starve yeah. the, the government. No, I mean, that's something that we should be definitely raising in the parliament here and uh, put a bit of work into it. Yeah. I think you're completely right, though, Helen, about the fact that the EU's role, particularly in the past few years, has been very much of a bluff a few statements or whatever 
or a bit of noise about something, but the whole thing of actually challenging policy that is completely, completely wrong and that we should have a principled position on, we completely failed to pick up the ball there. And this is a, a free pass, basically, for our allies, so-called allies, to actually do what they like. And this, the effects of this, like you say, are huge human consequences. Mm-hmm. And the EU that cares so much about human <coughs> rights should really be doing a lot more to hold well, the standard now. That's an interesting point, Damien, because uh, only only uh, about just a couple of months ago, there was, there was a, a resolution on Cuba. And I actually heard somebody from the left group that was involved in the resolution insisting that we don't mention the word U.S. sanctions in the resolution because uh, it will upset too there, many people. There are, there are people, though, who, talk, who's, who promote this narrative that, oh, the blockade, of course, is this thing or whatever, and it's been there for ages. We can't blame everything on the blockade. What do you say to those people? Because that's the, that, that's the thing we hear most about... That's time. Um, so I think actually the really interesting thing is someone who's, you know, studied the work of Che Guevara as a member of the Cuban government and studied the recent documents. The Cubans don't blame everything on the blockade because the blockade is there. It's it's something that they it's a variable they can't change or move and they never build it into their plans or expectations that it will be removed. And they just deal with what they can do to improve efficiency. And there's yes, there's lots of problems with um, you know problems that they are with all bureaucracies of inefficiencies and so on. But um, I think the the best response to people who say, oh, these problems that Cuba have are not the the result of the blockade is to say, lift the blockade and let's see. (laughs) Let's see what Cuba can do when it doesn't have a boot on its neck. Yeah, Yeah, and look, I think we're all doubly and trebly energised to do exactly that to campaign Mm -hmm. uh, to that end after having you on, Helen. It's been an absolute privilege and uh, remind people again, IC4Cuba, EU, to get your uh, resistance stepped up there and a bit of compensation if you're lucky, which you can (laughs) then send back to Cuba if we find a way for you. Um, And then, of course, the documentary itself, Cuba's Life Task, Combating Climate Change and the book, We Are Cuba. So uh, just to say that's available on YouTube and Helen's uh, in a number of languages as well. That's the documentary, not the book. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, it's available in Spanish, English, Arabic, Dutch and French. And we hope that we have um, more languages on the way. Yeah. Great. And also the event from yesterday, which was a screening of the film, plus a QA and a with Helen is also available on the European Parliament website, europarl.eu, um, and it'll be on Mick and Claire's Twitters as well. You'll be able to watch it back. OK, well. thank you very well, much well, again. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much, Helen, for coming on.